0: Augmented reality glasses will one day let us walk through a world where the digital blends together with the physical. 3D objects will be rendered and superimposed onto our field of vision, creating an environment for people to build applications that we can hardly dream of today. These augmented reality glasses are probably three to five years away from being ready for consumer use, but developers are already building augmented reality applications for smartphones using Apple ARKit and Android AR Core. These augmented reality toolkits use powerful smartphone processors and computer vision to give developers simple primitives for placing and manipulating 3D objects. Most of these AR applications are made for a single phone, and AR is useful for a single phone. For example, you could hold up your phone in front of an empty room and see on your phone how it would look if you had an IKEA couch sitting in the middle of that room. But shared augmented reality experiences can be much more exciting. Shared augmented reality can allow us to play a game of virtual basketball, both controlling the game that is synchronized between us. Shared AR would let me go to a restaurant and create a virtual billboard in front of the restaurant that only you would see when you walked up to the restaurant and held your phone in front of you the next time you were at that restaurant. Ubiquity 6 is a company with the goal of enabling shared AR experiences. Ankit Kumar is the co-founder and CTO of Ubiquity 6. He joins the show to explain why building shared AR is a challenging technical problem. It requires building a digital model of the real world and mapping that model to coordinates in space so that users can reliably persist augmented reality objects that each other can see. In this episode with Ankit, we talk about computer vision, digital mapping, the increasing power of phone processors, and the potential of shared AR. We are conducting a listener survey, and if you are a listener to the show, we would love to get your feedback. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com/survey and tell us what you like and what you don't like about the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com/newsletter and if you are looking to advertise on software engineering daily you can go to software engineering daily and click the advertise link at the bottom you can reach out to me jeff at software engineering we are looking for q1 sponsors and with that let's get on with this episode Ankit Kumar, you are the co-founder and CTO of Ubiquity 6. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. So augmented reality started working for smartphones in the last couple years. And people have been thinking about augmented reality for a while, but it was not technically feasible. What are the technical changes that have recently made AR a
1: possibility? Yeah, that's a good question. So there are really two. And one, I would say, is more is more the primary driver. So the primary driver, I would say, is smartphone processing power. And so you see, for example, that ARKit doesn't work past the iPhone 6S or whatever it is, and that's primarily because there's not enough compute cycles on those earlier devices to support it. So smartphone processing power has been sort of growing at a very fast rate, especially nowadays, I think we'll see even more sort of acceleration with respect to certain kinds of workloads. For example, uh, many like device manufacturers are introducing these sort of specific uh, neural engines, they would be called, but ultimately they're really just matrix multiply chips. And we'll see that accelerating even more. So smartphone processing power is, is probably the critical one, I think. And then of course there are also algorithmic improvements that have been coming from a number of disciplines to support something like AR actually, kind of both computer vision and more classical like robotics and, you know, what would maybe be called SLAM or VIO.
0: Give me more detail on the smartphone technology that has improved with respect to AR.
1: Yeah, so it's ultimately it would come down to the ability of smartphones to implement a system like ARKit, which is ultimately would probably be called visual inertial odometry. And so, or maybe it would be called SLAM depending on who you talk to. And this is essentially a computer vision technique that is sort of constantly doing image processing every frame. So like at 60 frames a second to detect sort of key points or track certain features in the, in the space and then integrating that very tightly with the gyroscope, the accelerometer, in some cases like the magnetometer as well to get a sense of where the phone is in six degree of freedom space frame to frame. So it's very high frequency. It's running 60 frames a second, or on, I think on Android, it's 30 frames a second. And it's very compute intensive, which is why if you run an AR kit app, for example, your phone is going to heat up probably eventually. It's going to use a lot of battery because it's really the phone is firing on all cylinders at the time. You sort of have the camera stream active. You're doing a lot of compute. You're probably rendering things, so the GPU is being invoked. You are also kind of probably listening to GPS and, and the sensors like accelerometer and gyroscope. So really the the entire phone is being flexed at that at that time.
0: You mentioned AR kit and Google also has AR core. So AR kit is for Apple. As an augmented reality developer, what problems do these augmented reality frameworks solve for you?
1: They they both solve kind of the critical core piece, which is there are a lot of sort of systems built around them, and especially in on iOS, for example, ARKit is pretty deeply integrated with SceneKit, which is their three D authoring uh, toolkit, I suppose. But really, those sort of integrations are are just kind of sugar on top. What the what the ARSDK fundamentally is providing to you is a pose estimate of the camera, of the phone, at a very high frame rate. And then you use that pose estimate to sort of place a virtual camera in some scene that you might have built in some other authoring tool, maybe not the ones that have deep integration like SceneKit. And ultimately, the kind of key critical piece that it's providing is 30 or or 60 FPS estimates of of the camera's pose in space. And pose means sort of both... Uh, positionally, so translation, as well as rotation, so orientation in space. So the advancements
0: that you're able to take advantage of at Ubiquity 6 are not just around the hardware and the local software running on the smartphone. There's also advantages to deep learning algorithms that may be running in the cloud or maybe they get trained in the cloud and they get deployed to your phone. Deep learning has advanced significantly recently, and this has improved computer vision. What are the computer vision algorithms that are involved in augmented reality?
1: Yeah, so just to note a bit about what we do. So we do very little on the device. We typically delegate to the device manufacturers for the on-device AR, as as you're sort of describing. And most of our work is done on the cloud, so you're right about that. To answer your question of what is, like, in AR, what is computer vision doing? So we just kind of need to decouple or, like, split up a couple things. So it kind of comes down to a question of, like, what are the features that AR provides or what are the features involved in AR? So the core critical piece I talked about before, six-degree of freedom, high-frequency tracking, VIO slam, I'll, I'll talk about sort of where computer vision is used in, in this In kind of this technique and it's actually relatively small or it's relatively encapsulated I would say in one part of the pipeline but then you can start thinking about things like you know forward-facing cameras where you know in snapchat or a lot of apple kind of demos and stuff where you're sort of detecting faces and putting face masks on on faces and that is a is also ar depending on how you think of it as well as things like object detection and tracking image recognition these things are sort of i think all part of a sort of ecosystem of ar functionality where different apps will use different subsets of them i personally consider the core critical piece being the tracking aspect i'll start with that so in the in that tracking part the high frequency sort of slam system where you what the what the compute what the algorithm is doing ultimately is building some representation of space and using that representation of space to very precisely tell where the camera is frame to frame. And so in this, you know, classically this could be called SFM or reconstruction in the computer vision community. In the robotics community, it might be called visual inertial odometry or SLAM. These are actually very similar algorithms. The computer vision side of it, the structure of motion or reconstruction is typically thought of as images only and high compute availability. Whereas in the robotics, it would be images, but also sensor sensor data like gyroscope, accelerometer, et cetera, and very high frequency. So in, in really both of these systems, I mean, they're different approaches, but broadly speaking, the computer vision aspect is really just sort of detecting features in images and tracking them across frames. And everything else is sort of an optimization problem that's trying to do what amounts to sensor fusion and integrate all of the different sensors like gyroscopic accelerometer into some consistent formulation of like where is this how has this phone or this camera broadly speaking moved over the last n frames and so in that in in that kind of regime where deep learning has helped a lot and where it will help is just in that core piece of finding key kind of feature points in space. And then everything after that is sort of optimization and a lot of is kind of geometric estimation and numerical methods that ultimately solve this. It's usually formulated as a big nonlinear optimization problem where computer vision was that kind of key core piece that formulated the problem at the beginning, but is really only just detecting these kind of points in space and matching them. So that's, that's in kind of the, the core part. The other parts that I mentioned, so like detecting your face, extracting a mesh of your face, detecting objects, tracking those, image recognition, these are much more sort of core, you know, full end-to-end computer vision solutions.
0: Let's zoom out and talk about what you're building at a high level, and then we'll come back to the engineering questions, because there's a lot of detail there in the, the computer vision discussion so at Ubiquity 6, you're building shared AR experiences. Give an example of an experience that you might want to build.
1: Yeah, sure. So I can talk about one that we've we've already done, actually. So we did kind of a preview of the app at the SF MoMA a few months ago, and we, we had two shared experiences there. One was, they were kind of both in the public, in these two public spaces of the SF MoMA. One was ultimately something like, an AR art exhibit, where we put a bunch of sort of floating. So let me let me take a step back. So the exhibit at the time at the MoMA was Magritte is this Belgian uh, surrealist painter, you know, he has a famous painting of like a pipe, and it says this is not a pipe in French, as an example. So he's a very surrealist painter, this was the exhibit at the time. And so it kind of fit this AR narrative quite well. And so one of the experiences was something like an AR art exhibit that was very Magritte themed very surreal and sort of you looked around and could kind of interact with other people a little bit but ultimately you're kind of seeing the art the other was a much more interactive one which is m- probably more similar to what we'll see on in, in the app and we we basically put a big sort of sandbox that in the MoMA where you could place you know every person could place little blocks and build on top of other people's blocks and You know, you could basically pick a color of a block and and place it. And so you're sort of like collaboratively building a sculpture in the MoMA, in a sense. And what you built would be persistent, and and you're kind of doing it with other people around you, and it's sort of there in the MoMA in a persistent manner. It It resides there now. So that would be an example of kind of a shared, persistent AR experience. So this
0: challenge of making a shared AR experience... This involves a lot of synchronization because you have uh, different people who are holding their smartphones and there's network partition issues. people people's smartphones have different performance. and you want the the AR experience to be consistent among the different people who are using their phones in the same space. I know this is a difficult issue because we did a show a while ago about, the networking in uh, like interactive mobile games and this sounds sounds pretty simple if you similar if you have a a mobile fighting game and there's a network partition it can be really problematic because if your opponent just like hits you and you're you had a network partition and and you you know you dropped off the network then you have no chance to defend yourself so tell me about the networking challenges of trying to deliver on this spatial sharing AR experience.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's a very key point is the the networking or the multiplayer aspect of this. And, you know, one of the reasons as we build our sort of content authoring tool and our content that we really try to build networking and multiplayer really deeply into the f- framework as a whole is that it's very important, especially in AR to have everything be in a sense natively networked or natively multiplayer. And one of the reasons for that is ultimately AR, actually many games or entertainment, but AR in particular is sort of trying to sell an illusion. And the real world is multiplayer, or like the real world is networked, so to speak. And so you really need that networking piece to be solid to sort of sell the illusion that this is actually some content in this physical space in like it just is in the world. So the networking challenge is important. So firstly, we decouple kind of the more traditional game networking stack, which is to say, make sure the virtual content is synchronized across all peers. We decouple that question with the sort of AR networking maybe concept, which is everyone should be in a consistent space, right? Or a consistent coordinate system. So let's talk about the the second one first, because it's it's a little simpler, I think. In our backend, we have a sort of consistent shared coordinate system that refers to the space that some experience resides in. So in this case, it was, let's say, the, the blocks building game in the MoMA. That lives in some coordinate space. And the first step is all the peers need to get localized and tracked by our backend in that coordinate space so that they all kind of view space in the same, in the same way, essentially. And so that is one kind of service that we have, which is really kind of the owner of that service is the same owner of the mapping service and the sort of 3D representation, computer vision set of, uh, set of infrastructure. So that is sort of a very kind of encapsulated service that says, you know, here's a kind of an identifier for a coordinate space, like tell me where I am in it and do that often and keep me synchronized with respect to that space that's a little simpler in the sense that it doesn't really need to be such high frequency. Because really, if we only update... So the first localization is very important. And then after that, we'll update with much lower frequency because we rely on ARKit or the on-device, you know, ARCore on Android. We rely on the on-device tracking to kind of fill in the gaps between updates that we get from our persistent system. Because ultimately, you can sort of back out from... Typically speaking, these AR SDKs will report like absolute poses relative to some origin, but you can always back out how much the phone has moved from some previous update to our to our kind of consistent coordinate space and compose that against what, where we think you were in our shared space and now we know where you are at this time. So that's a low frequency system, really. So now you have all peers knowing where they are in this one shared coordinate space And now we move on to the problem of synchronizing the virtual content across all peers. And this is a much more traditional sort of game networking challenge where it's got to be real time. It's got to be low latency. You have to be able to sort of, you know, you can't wait until the server kind of acknowledges every action before you show it to the client because things will seem very, very slow and, and sort of high latency. And so that's a much more kind of traditional game networking stack which we build very deeply into our sort of authoring tools and our content. So I can talk a little bit about, like, at a high level, how those things work. I actually think it's quite interesting. The way we do it, well, there, there are a number of different approaches to, to game networking or to sort of this more fundamental problem, I suppose, of synchronizing data across peers. And one approach that I think is, it's not exactly what we do, but I think it's very, well, it's very similar, and it's also very easy to understand and it's it's interesting as well is to think of to think of a game or to think of the kind of propagation of state every frame in a in a game or some experience as if you think of it very functionally where every peer is sort of submitting actions to some you know stateless pure function reducer that actually implements the propagation of space it sort of reduces the problem of data synchronization to everyone having the same ordered list of these actions and so First of all, that makes the problem much simpler now, right? So everyone starts with the same state, right? This is like a very common approach in something like StarCraft or League of Legends where like you start, you know, you find a match and then everyone starts a game, right? So everyone starts with the same space and then as long as everyone has, everyone, all the peers agree on the ordered list of actions, then everyone will arrive at the exact same kind of current state as long as the reducers are actually pure and are deterministic, right? So that's kind of the high-level approach, and there are, a bunch of, there are a bunch of additions that you need to make on top of that. One thing is that, typically speaking, it's hard to get determinism in games, especially if you're doing something like physics, where just the floating point operations itself will lose you determinism, and then that can actually you know, grow without bound relatively quickly. And so you need to have some kind of direct state synchronization for those pieces of data that are likely to be operated on in a non-deterministic way, if that makes sense. So every once in a while you send an update from like some concept of a master or someone who has authority on that piece of data to all the peers to accept the story of the world that their non-determinist compute has done on the state. And that, that master
0: in your setup is in the cloud or do you have some kind of like mesh networking or Bluetooth setup or is it just a centralized master in the cloud?
1: For us right now, it's typically on the cloud. There are, as you as you sort of pointed out, there are approaches where it could be kind of like a peer-to-peer connectivity where there's sort of one master, which is all which is one of the peers, and it doesn't really realize that it's the master. But there are some issues with respect to like cheating there, or like one of the other upsides of having like an authoritative server that's adjudicating these functions essentially is that you have control over like. Someone can maybe cheat locally, so like their local client thinks that they're like winning, but the source of truth is like rejecting it for whatever reason. So we we do we have a master in the cloud.
0: The idea of persistence, you want people to be able to place objects in augmented reality and then have other people walk up to those objects at a later date, perhaps interact with them.
1: Why is persistence a hard problem? Persistence comes down so the problem of persistence is part of the sort of mapping or computer vision side of the world. It, it's a hard problem for a number of reasons. First, because the environment changes often. And so, you know, for example, Android has the concept of cloud anchors. This is like an AR core feature where you can sort of take a, a representation of some part of the space, then AR core will host it in the cloud and someone else can localize against it. So now you're in the same corner system. And those will only last for, I think it's 24 hours. And part of the reason that that is a requirement is that the approach that they've taken there is very sort of local in scope. So you kind of make an anchor as it's called on some area of say a plane or, or a wall or whatever it is. And that might change, right? You come back 24 hours later, it might look totally different. And now the other peer isn't gonna be able to find it really. And so environments change kind of not just in terms of actual items or whatever it is moving around, but also in terms of, say, like time of day will make the lighting change a lot, or the seasons could change or or whatever it is, or it could be dark or it could be light. And so in order to really solve the problem of persistence, you need to have a representation of space that is, well, first of all, persistent. So before in ARKit, for example, before AR world maps were a thing, which is a relatively recent addition to the, to the SDK. There was no concept of persistence in the first place. So ARKit would run session a session, and, and once the session's over, then all of the sort of built up understanding of the space is, is essentially lost. Now you can save an, uh, a thing called an AR world map, which is very, very useful, but it's kind of limited in scope, and es- basically because it's what comes out of the session that is running on the device, and there are limitations to what can be done on a device. And so that's kind of a long-winded way of how how do we solve persistence is that we build much kind of higher fidelity and more full representations of some space, and we do that by reconciling session data or sensor data from a number of different devices into one consistent representation of the space that is more resilient to these changes and is constantly updated as people come back to the space and view the content. And that kind of lets us get around these issues of things changing or different times of day or sort of limitations in scope. Because fundamentally, the the system is built to reconcile across multiple different kind of streams of sensor data. And that kind of captures a bunch of different conditions naturally. So
0: one idea here is that if you have people who are messing around with augmented reality applications, they're walking around, they're essentially, you know, waving their camera over the real world... You're picking up uh, location-aware visualizations of the world, location-aware, positionally-aware visions of the world, and you can stitch these together. We have done a few shows with Mapillary that is doing something kind of similar, where you know they they have people who are essentially crowdsourcing all of these smartphone images, and because they're positionally aware, they can Mapillary in the cloud can stitch all these together, and they can get basically a vision of the physical world stitched together from these different phones and then you can do all kinds of interesting things with that Uh, like you can you know you can do do object uh segmentation so that you can you can actually classify the objects that are in the real world but let's let's talk a little bit about the the stitching together process so so people are taking these videos with their phone or they're just taking these images with their phone and then these are getting passed to you in the cloud, and then you're you're getting a, a real time, or you're getting a a positionally aware mapping of the physical world. Is that what you're doing?
1: Yeah, that's right. So it's the mapping portion is not kind of designed to necessarily be real time. The localization and tracking portion is. And so one way to think of it, so consider consider the following case. So you have a space, say the MoMA. Mapped, So maybe we mapped it, maybe you mapped it when you set up the experience, whatever it is. Now you have another kind of consumer coming into the space and tracking themselves in the space or, or ultimately trying to view this AR experience, this AR content. So what's what's happening there is that the this user is sending sensor data to our back end. And in real time, our back end is reconciling that sensor data against the 3D representation of the space of, that we have at the time. Now, asynchronously, the stream of sensor data that is coming in from that person is being stored elsewhere and later we will we'll kind of go into a queue to update the map and keep it sort of up to date or more full or in many times it'll increase the spatial extent or or whatever it is. So the mapping portion, the updating portion, we would call it internally we'd call it the merging portion that's that's happening asynchronously in order to sort of the goal of that is to essentially keep the map or the space up to date and big. The tracking portion, which is what you need to do when you actually want to view the content, is happening in real time and the kind of key criteria the key kind of metric there will be latency. So tell me about that problem of stitching
0: together, images or videos to make a map of the real world how the last i I remember about well just tell me about what's the state of the art in terms of the research or are are there well-defined algorithms for doing that are you kind of at the cutting edge like how hard of a problem is that today
1: there are well-defined i would call them approaches or or techniques i mean algorithms fair enough there are well-defined and mature algorithms for what's called in what would be called in the computer vision community, structure for motion or reconstruction. Those would be used interchangeably. And those typically take as input an unordered set of images. That's like the classical problem statement. Given an unordered set of images, oftentimes the the techniques would be motivated by a desire to sort of take community photo collections from, say, Flickr or whatever, and, and use those So given an an unordered set of images, build the representation of, of the 3D space. That's sort of the classical problem statement. We have a slightly different problem statement, which is given a set of kind of sessions from devices, build the 3D representation of space. So the difference there is, well, two things. One is we have video, so we have some temporal consistency that we can rely on, which typically speaking, SFM can't. And the second is that we have much more sensor data than just images. We have gyroscope, we have accelerometer, we have GPS, we have magnetometer. And we also have ARKit estimates or AR core estimates, which to, from the perspective of our backend are just another probabilistic measurement coming from some sensor. So we have basically more data, and so our approach is something like a merging of SFM techniques and SLAM techniques, which typically do have that kind of sensor data, to kind of get the best of both worlds in a sense. So how does it work? I mentioned earlier that there's really a very small part of it which is computer vision. And really the only computer vision part is detecting and sort of representing feature points in images. So you, you take an image, you run a you know feature extractor, which nowadays would often be deep learning. This is like one of the places that deep learning can really help SFM or reconstruction Although the the recent, I mean, it's not, interestingly enough, it's not a slam dunk. You know, it's not conclusive that deep learning is actually better for this right now. But I think it probably will be, you know, sooner or later. But so you, you take an image, you extract a bunch of features, you take, a, you, you sort of match those features against a bunch of diff- other images or features that you've extracted from other images. And now you're kind of in a nonlinear optimization, geometric estimation world, there's really no more computer vision to happen. So now the process is an iterative one where you you sort of initialize the system with some some of the images, you triangulate landmarks. So a landmark would be considered kind of like a point in space. So the idea is that every feature that you extracted from one of these images, so what is that feature? It's light emanating from some surface in space and kind of hitting the camera at that pixel location. And so if you have two such detections of that surface and there's enough baseline between the images in which they were observed, you can triangulate where that point is in space, right? So that's kind of one of the key, they're kind of like, I would say, three maybe core sort of building blocks of reconstruction. One is the feature extraction, as I described. One is triangulation. And the triangulation is just, I mean, it's just typical triangulation where you have two kind of bearing vectors corresponding to these, Feature points that you've detected, and you find where they match in space. So now you have some rep- some idea of where that surface was that generated the light that was that feature extraction that you found. And then, given that, you can estimate where another image that saw that point. You actually need like four or five of them, but you can estimate where another image was in space because it saw that point in a specific orientation on the on the, like the image. And then you kind of iterate this over and over and over, kind of re-estimating more images, then re-triangulating more landmarks, then re-estimating more images until you've recovered as much as you can. So it's a pretty pretty amazing thing that these like very, you know, basically I just mentioned three sort of building blocks. One is uh, feature extraction, one is triangulation, and one is this, it would be called absolute pose estimation, where you, given the fact that you see certain like landmarks in space in a certain way on your image, this is where the image must be. That's kind of the problem that that's trying to solve. You can just kind of iterate this over and over and over and recover a you know very full three representation of space. There's one thing that I didn't mention there, which is what would be called bundle adjustment, which is at various points along this process, uh, you kind of formulate this very big nonlinear optimization problem and you solve it, and that would be called bundle adjustment. And that problem is essentially... You know, if, if you hypothesize that this image saw this point at this location on the image. So you have a 3D point and you have a 2D pixel location on the image where your computer vision system essentially has told you that I observed that 3D point. When you actually reproject that 3D point into the image's plane, given your current estimate of where the image is, it won't match up perfectly, right? It'll be a little bit off. And so there's a cost there that would be called like the reprojection error. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to minimize the sum of all those costs. So what I just described there is would probably be called classical incremental reconstruction. Now what we have is a bunch of more sensor data, gyroscope, accelerometer, GPS as I described. So the question is in that story, how can you integrate this new sensor data? And the key kind of the key change there, the key thing there is to formulate so that big nonlinear optimization that I just described is called bundle adjustment in the computer vision community. You can interpret all of those reprojection errors that I just mentioned as something like probabilistic measurements. So they're Gaussian measurement errors. And now that bundle adjustment problem is really a special case of a more general probabilistic graphical model called a factor graph, where you have a bunch of different measurements that are that from which you derive a bunch of different errors that are basically the Gaussian like measurement error of like if the real thing is at this location and i measured it at this location and my measurement has this covariance here's how much error that is and so now you have a principled way to add new kinds of those sorts of measurement errors and now you have a principled way to add new sensor data like gyroscope accelerometer etc into this big nonlinear optimization problem and solve it much better so that's kind of what we do
0: it's worth reiterating here why is it important to have a map of the physical world that all of your users can agree on. Why is that important? Why is mapping the real world so core to building an augmented reality world on top of that real world?
1: Yeah, so what you just mentioned at the end there is exactly why you you want to align the virtual content on top of the real world. And if you want to support that kind of a functionality, you need to be you need to have some reference to which you can place virtual content and have that reference be fundamentally linked to the real world. And so if we don't agree on the coordinate system of the real world, or like where a certain, say, building is in space, then when I place content where I think that building is, maybe for me it's at 10, 10, 10 or whatever, if in your coordinate space, your coordinate space is sort of translated and rotated, so you think it's at like one, two, three, then even though I wanted to put it at the building, it's going to show up in some random place for you. And the only way we can obviate this problem is if we all agree that the building is at 10, 10, 10, this other thing is at five five five. And so if I put some virtual content at some location, like that is, that is not just some arbitrary coordinate system in some random 3D space. That's relative to where we agree the origin is, which is some maybe street corner or whatever it is, or an office or a house or whatever it is.
0: So... Given that algorithmic description that you gave, there is work to be done in in implementing that and actually putting this into practice, putting it in the cloud, building some data pipeline around doing all that, ingesting all of the, the image data and stitching it together using all of those different algorithms you described, Tell me about the data pipeline, the from
1: ingest to 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 processing that that mapping. Yeah. So scaling scaling this algorithm is no easy task, and part, there, there there are a bunch of reasons for that. One is the just quantity of the data that you're working with, which is kind of what you're describing here. There are other problems also, like the way I described that problem is we'll have n squared growth of complexity because you have to match these features across different images, right? So as that number of images grows a lot, like the number of matches you would have to compute in a naive sense grows very quickly. So you, you need to... That's just to say that there are sort of infrastructure scalability challenges that we have to solve, but there are also algorithmic scalability challenges that we have to solve. So you, you asked about the, the data pipeline. So we kind of ingest data from, from phones in a, in a stream, they're stored as kind of frame wise in s three, which is kind of like the source of truth of the of the data and then essentially what what goes through the sort of compute pipeline broadly speaking are pointers to those kind of blobs and then the important the important piece with respect to scalability of of the algorithm is to kind of at all times break up the algorithm into into meaningful but smaller chunks, and then have some reconciliation stage at the end, or maybe not necessarily at the end, but in some sort of tree-like structure, which would be a more, you know, traditional approach. So as the data goes through the pipeline, it's sort of clustered and split by way of our current estimates of the positions or like the relative kind of structure of the data. And then those, are, those estimates are kind of constantly being updated by the by the pipeline itself and so there's a sort of iterative approach there
0: if i recall as if as if these problems weren't enough when i was talking to mapillary it sounded like if you if you don't pay attention to to the costs or to like how your data growth is going your costs can like get completely out of control because you just have so much processing you're doing um, do you have some, Is are there some bounds around like the, the context in which you're trying to solve this problem? Do you have like a testing ground or how are you constraining the problem today before, you know, before you're anywhere close to kind of launching and getting to profitability?
1: Yeah. So that's a very true point is that these workloads are very compute heavy and most things that run at the scale that we would hope to run at are much well, less compute heavy. They're much kind of more bandwidth heavy or, or whatever it is. But these are very, very compute heavy, and that takes, that co- I mean, it costs money to get CPUs. So that's a very fundamental part of the system that we think about. And a lot of the kind of algorithmic challenges that I was mentioning around, you know, making sure that, for example, that it doesn't grow as N-squared, which is obviously not going not gonna to work, are around sort of utilizing approximations where appropriate to bring down the amount of compute we have to do to arrive at kind of very, very close to the same solution or or in many cases sometimes it can be better depending on depending on some properties of the data. But so we try to we try to limit the scope in an algorithmic sense, which is to say like implement and design algorithms that fundamentally don't grow as kind of severely as the, the class the naive way would do. And then the other thing is that as we're kind of in development now nowadays and sort of as we develop this, these these systems, we kind of focus on areas around the office, which is partly just for convenience, but also partly to kind of limit the scope and kind of provide ourselves with a bit of a sandbox to test this stuff out. And, you know, I mentioned doing the this preview at the MoMA. That was a great example because one thing is that we believe that AR experiences should generally speaking, serve to bring out the venue in which they're in. So like, that's one of the real powers of AR is that it's in the real world. And so the MoMA being kind of like a very interesting venue in the first place is, a, is in my opinion, a great place for AR. But the other thing was the MoMA was just around the street from our office at the time. So it was very convenient for us. And, and we need to do some of those things while we develop to sort of provide ourselves that sandbox to, to develop these systems.
0: Many of the people that you've hired, I think including yourself, it seems like you were impacted by science fiction about augmented reality. What is it about those science fiction stories that are so compelling?
1: Yeah, that's 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 very true. So, one of the big inspirations for the company actually when my co-founder and I were thinking about about the idea is is an, is actually a book called Rainbow's End by Werner Vinge, which is a science fiction book which is about sort of a a future where AR is ubiquitous. That's kind of where the name comes from, also, this concept of ubiquitous AR. And everyone is sort of wearing or, like, has wearables where they kind of see this AR world overlaid on top of the real world. That was a big sort of inspiration. So why is science fiction such a big thing? Well... I think that a lot of science fiction books, and Werner Vinge is a great example, there's sort of a lot of, the, a lot of it is about world building. So like like kind of constructing this science fiction world in which a lot of things are different or there's new technology or whatever it is. And I think oftentimes it's not necessarily about exactly how that world manifests itself in the story, but it's about the kind of promise of that world or like what that world could allow in general. And I think people want to build that because they have their own ideas of what could we do with such technology.
0: As you're pushing the bounds of what is possible today in AR, are there any limitations that you're running up against where you're starting to think, oh man, maybe we need, maybe this area of technology still needs to get a little bit better before we can realize our dreams? Are there any bottlenecks you're sensing?
1: Well, so there are two answers to that. I think I think with respect to to what we consider kind of the core technology that would support the kinds of content that we want to build now and that we think are engaging enough and to, to sort of support the kinds of traction that we want and the kinds of say vision that we want to deploy I think in that regime it the technology is mature enough I think we're pretty confident in the current approaches that we're taking that Academia is taking, and we feel pretty confident that those things will be delivered in a reliable way and an accurate way, et cetera. I think that you know, if you look at, if you think about the growth of this company as as we sort of succeed and 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 grow and try to add new and more and more novel features, what that looks like is more and more understanding of space. And so, there's a bunch of features or content you can imagine that you could create if you had a much deeper understanding of space. And I think in that regime, there are some bottlenecks or let's say like invention that needs to get done to really like solidly deliver on some of those promises or some of those features. I don't think those are necessary by any means to sort of deliver the vision that we want to deliver on kind of initially, the core vision, let's say. But a lot of that is around the integration of, well, in my opinion, it will be solved by more and more integration of deep learning into the 3D arena, which has not really happened too deeply. I mean, recently there are some really interesting approaches coming out of places like DeepMind for some of these ideas, but I think to really deliver on some of the much more forward-facing, like long-term features or or functionality that we want to provide, especially around like really deeply understanding spaces, I think there might be some kind of fundamental invention that needs to happen.
0: Where does deep learning fit into 3D, what, 3D modeling, 3D imagery? What are you talking about there?
1: I'm talking about understanding 3D space. So right now, the common uses of deep learning, where it really shines and has sort of conclusively come out as like the the best approach, would be kind of 2D images. So you pass a 2D image or a list of 2D images in, in video cases, and the algorithm is looking... Spatially in the image, so so 2D on the image plane, and then in some of these video-based approaches, it would be temporally as well. So it's looking temporally across across images. There's not that many approaches yet on kind of giving deep learning. So in that in those cases, the input to the algorithm is either an image or let's say a list of Im- an ordered list of images. There's not they're not that many techniques out yet, or like approaches that have really been proven out yet where the input is essentially what would be an unordered set of images where you know their positions in space. So like you have six degree of freedom, pose, understanding of each image in space. And that would allow the algorithm to do things like triangulation, or, or ultimately learn about the geometry, like geometric concepts, and then use those in its sort of understanding of, or its, you know, operation to produce some prediction or whatever it is. And so... I think that that's actually a very, very hard problem because what it comes down to is how do you represent the geometric structure of an input to a network, which, as I mentioned, there are some approaches that are kind of not very scalable because they build like these big sort of plain sweep volumes and like the, the memory usage is just insane. Or there are some approaches that are trying to do this in a more principled way that are kind of new and, and quite promising, I would, I would say, but it's not kind of proven yet, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So in terms of hardware, how does what you're working on, well I guess in terms of hardware and software, how does your in terms of what you what you're working on compare to what you believe to be in practice at places like Magic Leap or the HoloLens? How do the approaches differ?
1: Well, I think one of the main ways they differ is in well, in the problem statement in many cases. So Hardware companies or hard- hardware platforms, generally speaking, are trying to solve on-device challenges. So build a map or track or build a mesh or build a map or whatever the problem may be on-device in real time and use it as like constant feedback for the user as they're doing some experience. This is also what the AR SDKs do for what it's worth. And we are more in the sort of asynchronous cloud setting where what we want to do is kind of reconcile a bunch of different device sessions into one consolidated representation of the space. And so it's, it's, it's a pretty fundamentally different problem statement, I would say. Like these devices, the, the way the algorithms are set up and the way the, the way the, let's say, paradigms are, is that they'll essentially allocate every session a coordinate system that is origin where they opened up the app or the device. And, and then everything is relative to that coordinate system. For us, it's it's different. For us, the coordinate system is is the world is like GPS. Like there's some true coordinate system, right? The, the world is is on a real coordinate system, and we're trying to sort of ultimately understand a, that shared coordinate system. Whereas the the device SDKs, typically speaking, are trying to understand a local coordinate system. I mean, there's similarities, of course.
0: Right. That's a big difference. So, final question: How long until the augmented reality glasses become a mainstream device, or, or until they're ready to use. And what are the bottlenecks to
1: that happening? Well, first of all, I would love for it to come sooner rather than later because I would—I'm be, very excited about that. I think that AR glasses are are not quite there yet. I don't—I would predict something like you know three to five years. It's a—it's a bit of a shot in the dark for me.
0: That's what I've heard from other people too. Yeah,
1: yeah. But to be fair, that's just like a. It's a pretty safe thing to say. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) So what are the bottlenecks? Well, compute is a big issue because to support AR on the glasses, as I've been mentioning, some relatively powerful compute to power these algorithms. And you don't want to put them on the glasses itself because it'd be bulky. And especially if it like heats up, then it's on your face when it's heating up. So I would say form factor, which is related to compute is a big issue. I also think that the displays are kind of a key technical piece that doesn't seem to be fully solved. I'm sure there are other bottlenecks as well, especially around, say, battery. I mean, I think the hardware challenge is, is very significant still. And then on the software side, well, you need a a you need a, an image stream that's coming from the glasses. You got to put a camera up there. Um, I think it's primarily hardware.
0: Okay. Well, it's been great talking to you Ankit and I'm really excited about what you're building you are clearly doing something you're passionate about and you have the domain expertise to tackle that problem so best of luck thank you
1: thanks for having me wow